Welcome back to Finest Hours, the show where we share amazing true stories of human achievement and influence. We are back again. I am Braden Cromar, joined by my co-host Hayden Hansen and our executive producer, Skylar Williams. It's been a very long time. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, how long has it been? It's been two months three. Months. three, three. Yeah, the last months. time we recorded was our Halloween special, and we haven't recorded since. Oh yeah, it was the Night Witches. Ooh. Yep. Happy late New Year. We made it through 2020, which is a huge sigh of relief. It probably was the worst year of my life, but some good things did. Really? Probably. It probably Buckle was. up then. Mine was it, pretty, I, not to be, you know, that one person, but it was pretty good for me. I can't lie. <laughs> I didn't, uh, I didn't have to see too many person. people. It wasn't the hardest year of my life, but I think just world events since on my time on this earth, 2020 was probably the worst year of my life <laughs> it wasn't uh, my worst year but it's everybody else's <laughs> i'm on record saying in january of 2020 last year when we did our episode on christopher clayton hutton i said happy new year hopefully 2020 doesn't suck as bad as 2019 <laughs> did <laughs> that aged well and now that i well. now that i look back i can't even think of anything bad that happened in 2019 there was nothing bad that happened in 2019 Life was hunky-dory. I can't think of a single thing. We had to sleep 2020 off for about a month before we started doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know. We, we were hungover from 2020. And 2020 hangover. We're back in 2021. Back in the pink. I don't know where that expression comes from, but... Better than ever. Never it's been three months, more. but uh, it's, it's Hayden's turn to pick a person. And Hayden, who did you choose? I chose Charles Lindbergh, not to be confused with his brother, Charles Lindenberger, man. <laughs> An aviation hero. I probably knew the name of his plane better than I knew his own name, but I knew the spirit of St. Louis as a name more than I knew the pilot. And so that's kind of what prompted me to take a look at him and see who the pilot was, learn a little bit more about him. So a little bit of background. Charles was born in Detroit to some Swedish immigrants. His mother was a school teacher and his father was a congressman for much of Charles's early life. And so he was born in Detroit, but ended up in Minnesota at an early age. That is where Charles's father ended up running for and gaining a position in the House. The House of Representatives. It's not the white one. It's the different house. It's a house in word. But anyway, his parents end up splitting up when he's about seven. Because his father was in the House of Representatives, Charles spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. And his mom moved around as a school teacher. She moved around a lot. And so he actually spent time in a dozen different schools before he ended up graduating high school. He went to school in Redondo Beach, California, and Minnesota, and D.C., He ends up enrolling at the University of Wisconsin, and his interest was in mechanical engineering. But he ended up dropping out about halfway through his sophomore year because he wanted to pursue a career in aviation, and he ended up moving to Nebraska, where he was going for his flight training. 
go from Redondo Beach to Nebraska. Well, and some other places in between. All the places in between, and he ended up right in the middle. A very average choice. <laughs> Below <Clearly>. average. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to offend our listeners in Nebraska, if there's any of if them. If we have any. We got but, um, we'll gain some haters in Nebraska from here, if nothing else. Because that's how, that's how you gain popularity. You have to ha- have haters. <laughs> <laughs> the Kanye West approach to promote what, yeah. what you have. <laughs> let's just start. Uh, let's just start offending everybody. Everybody, <laughs> perfect. I mean, we could be. We're already good at that. <laughs> let's be honest. Training in Nebraska is excellent. The only thing you have to watch out for are tornadoes. No mountains. No trees. Like that's true. There everything are is a landing strip at this point. Corn. Yeah. <clears throat> that is that is a very good point, Hayden. And this is early aviation, which is very dangerous, and we'll discuss that a little bit. Yeah, let's be honest. A nice breeze would knock a plane out of the sky. Early in his training, he couldn't afford to solo fly the planes because you had to post a damage bond. Hayden, what is a damage bond? So uh, essentially, you had to shell out some money beforehand before you could take the plane because they were pretty confident you were going to hurt their plane and they'd have to fix it. <laughs> so it's, it's basically insurance without an insurance agency. Yep. You post you the bond, you get to borrow my stuff. Would you get that money back if you didn't damage anything? Picture it kind Probably of more. like a, what is that? A deposit when you're renting. <laughs> so odds are, if the person's nice, you'll get a large percent back or most of it, maybe even all of it. If the person's nice, they may just take your money. <laughs> I see. Or if the person's not nice. Or if they're nice, they might just take your money too. <laughs> That's true. They could be a lovely person <laughs> and, and still take a lot money. of money off of damage <laughs> bonds. I'm not in the aviation business. I'm in the bond business. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to raise money in order to continue with this training. So he took up barnstorming, which is our word of the day. What do we call this? Elementary school vocabulary? This isn't very... Elementary. This Basically, isn't very elementary. everybody should know what barnstorming is. Yeah, if you don't know what barnstorming is, what's wrong with you? You're so this is, a, this is a compound word. Barn <laughs> and storm are two separate words, and then they make it a verb by adding ing. And so basically <laughs> what this dude is doing is he is throwing lightning bolts, wind, and rain at barns, right? <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> wrong. That is wrong. And I, I don't know whose turn it is, but uh, Skyler, tell us what barnstorming is. So barnstorming is when one flies up into the sky on an airplane, proceeds to get out of the airplane, walk across the wing of the airplane, and fall off <laughs> with the parachute we may not know but typically it's basically a daredevil so <laughs> he uh he takes up becoming a daredevil doing stunts with the planes to raise money so that he could continue his training and afford those damage bonds which he may or may not get back yeah <laughs> aviation is very new at this point in history and they have open cockpit planes they're usually flying pretty low to the ground so these shows were pretty popular lots of people would show up a good time this Watch was people. the roaring 20s i i would like to see it and it's you know 100 years later i'd be so down so i think like the last big kind of barnstorming was happening like 1941 but a lot of the safety rules were changed to where you can't perform certain stunts 
at an altitude of less than X, right? And so it's like, hey, let's go watch the barnstorming. And it's all happening like to the point where you can't even see the people on the wings. Like it's so high up in the air. So it just totally lost its uh, lost its wings, you might say. In addition to his stunts, wing walking and parachuting, he spent some time as an airplane mechanic, which all this is all this is laddering up. It's making he's getting some good experience here that would prove very valuable in his aviation career. And he's kind of experiencing it from all angles. So winter ends up hitting pretty hard. And so he doesn't end up flying for about six months. He goes back and <laughs> it's a hard winter. So he goes and lives in Minnesota. Cause that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. They go, like, oh, man, this is, where is he at the time again? Nebraska, he goes from Nebraska okay, so winter to Minnesota. Yeah, so he Which goes. Winter from the, is summer. <laughs> like the, this winter is rough. I'm going to go from the second coldest place in America to the first coldest place in America. That's brilliant, Lindbergh. Good. So thinking. he ends up going six months without you know touching a plane, either as passenger pilot, whatever. And so he ends up at the end of the six months, uh, he flies as a passenger to pick up a plane for himself. And so he ends up purchasing his first plane for a solid five hundred dollars. Thoughts. Inflation calculation. Inflation calculation. How much is it? How much is it? I'm, your best I'm, guess. I'm trying. Remember from our one of our first episodes that the US inflation calculator.com doesn't really work very well. <laughs> yeah, it didn't <laughs> it takes reach forever. Like the number. <laughs> so what year is this? 1920. 1923. So that's only $7,567. I guess with 7500 not bad. Back then, uh, things were about 15 times cheaper than they are today. Yeah, that's the price of a used Honda Civic, and you get an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask, you, you uh, young people out there about to buy their first car, Honda Civic? Plane. What you going to pick? <laughs> and let Obviously me tell you, back the then, plane. it was probably easier to get a pilot's license than it was to get a driver's license. <laughs> I don't know. Today. I don't know, because we'll, we'll find out just how hard it was to go through this training all right so he purchases this plane for five hundred dollars and he had flown down with one other person and so at this point he is alone with his own plane this is the first time he ends up flying solo so guess what wise money savvy guy never posted a bond a damage bond to fly alone he ended up just buying a plane instead so his first solo flight he ends up practicing over the next uh, week or so, gains five hours of pilot in command time. That's what he needed. Five hours of flying on his own before he could really fly however he wanted. And so he ends up taking off after he gains that five hours of training, you know, near this field where he had bought this plane and he takes off. And from there he flies across the entire country. So let me just practice for five hours and then I'll just go five hours straight, you know, fly across the whole country. NBD. <laughs> Certainly a brave person. Brave chap. Brave, brave chap. individual. <laughs> and so now that he's got his own plane, he also needs a name. Dun, dun, dun. What does he come up with? Tell us, he, Skyler. He brands himself as Daredevil Lindbergh. <laughs> <laughs> we agreed before, the, before we started recording that that is a stupid nickname. Pilot extraordinaire, but not a catchy marketer. Car driver Lindbergh. 
Daredevil Lindbergh, you know, it's it's all the same. American citizen Lindbergh. Yeah, there you go. It's real exciting stuff there. Nazi sympathizer Lindbergh. He's got a lot of names. That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> he has his own plane. He uh, names himself Daredevil Lindbergh and he barnstorms all the time. And so he's traveling across the country with a bunch of other pilots and they're barnstorming. He ends up making pretty good money, but it's because he's doing it literally every day. At one point, he ends up in Wisconsin, and there is some major flooding that had caused major problems for those that still traveled on the ground. Don't know who was still doing that at this point. Don't know why everybody didn't just buy a plane for 500 bucks. <laughs> um, but he ends up transporting physicians on multiple occasions, kind of as a taxi service. So that was pretty cool. He's got a good heart and definitely wanted to help people that were in dire straits. And I think it shows. Isn't that a Um, band name? That's a band name, right? Dire Straits? Yeah. I think so. It's a British rock band. That's what I thought. I definitely thought it would be either rock or metal. Dire Straits. There you go. That was pretty good. Maybe you should do our maybe you should do our British accents from now on. Yeah, that was nice. I enjoyed that. I've been working on it. Oh, nice. all pandemic so. <laughs> well i'm glad something came out of the pandemic <laughs> yeah, yes that's what you get when you uh binge netflix and the british baking show that's how you that's how you guys have been watching that's what hannah watches so you know everybody loves the british sometimes baking i watch show. it yeah it's pretty good it's great it makes me feel good inside <laughs> that's good <laughs> need, need something wholesome yeah I understand. Yes. certainly wholesome So anyway, uh, a couple of the experiences that Charles ended up having as a new pilot, and this is why the the damage bond was such a good idea at the time, was he ended up breaking his propeller multiple times during his landings. He ended up running into a ditch with his- We're coming in too hot. (laughs) We're coming in hot. (laughs) So he runs into a ditch um, while he has his father in the plane. He was taking his father to a campaign stop when he was running for Senate, and he ends up running- (laughs) Uh, the uh, not future senator into a ditch, which I just, to me, that's kind of funny. <laughs> but here's the other interesting thing with all these, you know, damages that he was building up, he was able to repair them all on his own, which is why, you know, mechanical engineering, historical mechanic, before he ends up owning a plane, all of these things played out really nice for him. And it's why he never ended up paying a damage bond because he could just fix it on his own. Why, you know, lose cash when he's saving up for a plane. He'd saved up for this plane and he owned it for all of five months before he ended up selling it to a flying student. He should have kept it and then rented it and charged damage, damage bonds. bonds. <laughs> what? The missed opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> Lindbergh ends up damaging his friend's aircraft after the engine completely failed while he was in the air and he was able to repair it on his own. Those two years of university really did him good. (laughs) Year and a half. Year and a half. Yeah. Year and a half. In March of 1924, he ended up joining the military for flight training and his training was set to last for about a year. Eight days before graduation, he and another student collided in midair during an aerial combat maneuvers he bailed the plane and still graduated at the top of his class. Now, there was 104 students that began this training. I'm going to let you think about how many graduated. 
and I'm going to tell you how many graduated. There were only 18 <laughs> out of that 104 that started that ended up graduating. They may or may not have died. We don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> 18 people ended up completing that flight training and Charles was the top of the class. His graduated post-World War I earned him his Army Pilot's Wings and a commission as a second lieutenant in the Air Services Reserve Corps. Due to the Army not needing additional pilots, Lindbergh went back to barnstorming, because of course he did, and he picked up a gig as a flight instructor. He joined the Missouri National Guard part-time and was eventually promoted to captain. He was hired and had been working as a flight instructor to deliver mail at Robertson Aircraft Corporation. The route was St. Louis to Chicago in 1925. Is it the route or the route? I don't know. My grandpa said route. And I also think of that song, Get Your Kicks on Route 66. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So every time I I see, I don't know if it's route or route, but. It's like tomato, tomato. Maybe I just kind of inherited that from my grandfather who lived in a small farming town in central Utah. He knew all the routes. The roots. All the roots. He knew, the he, knew, roots. he knew his own roots. The roots. But it was around this time that Lindbergh applied to serve as a pilot to an expedition to the North Pole. Super cool, but his bid came in too late. But he was open to large expeditions and long flights. But twice while flying to Chicago, he had to bail on night approaches. <laughs> he wasn't injured and immediately set out making sure his cargo reached the destination with minimum delays. Pretty so cool. I just, want to, I just want to picture that, you know, it's nighttime, you're flying in and something's going wrong on your approach. And you're like, wow, this airplane's not in good shape. Peace <laughs> out. Like, I'm out of here. I'm not staying in this thing. You bail well, out of the plane, you parachute down and you're like, ah, oh, crap. Well, it's dark. I don't know where I'm at. Where the heck did my plane go? <laughs> I, I like that he was concerned about making sure the cargo reached the destination on time. And USPS, if you're listening, <laughs> you could really take a lesson. I've been binge watching Seinfeld, and I'm convinced that every postal service worker is Newman. <laughs> I'm not going to work today. It's raining. <laughs> you're a postman. It's true. It's true. I'm not going in today. <laughs> Lindbergh ends up becoming extremely famous in what he is most well-known for. So what he is most well-known for is his pursuit of the Ortigue Prize. The Ortigue Prize was a $25,000 award for the first non-stop transatlantic flight, specifically between New York City and Paris. And he put a time cap on it of five years. About the time that he had posted this award, or that this award was posted, two people had just flown nonstop across the Atlantic. A couple of British men flew from Newfoundland, Canada, to Ireland. And so that was a total of about 1,800 miles. And so they were the first, and they did it about this time. But the person posting the prize said, look, that's cool, but nobody, nobody's going to go you know, all the way up to Newfoundland so they can fly across the Atlantic. It'd be much more impressive to go from two major hubs. So how about, how about New York City to Paris? And that doesn't seem like too much farther when you just kind of look at the map. A little bit longer on both legs, right? Well, it's about twice as far. So it's about 3,000 miles, which is crazy to look at that and was a pretty crazy prize at the time, which is why nobody attempted it. 
And so nobody, nobody took him up on his offer for the surprise of 25 grand because at the time nobody was ready. But as the time frame was ticking down and eventually expired, there were a bunch of pilots that had expressed interest. And so they actually ended up extending the prize an additional five years. That leaves the room open for Lindbergh to make the attempt. He was going through flight school when the attempt had kind of first been posted. So he definitely needed it extended if he was going to be able to compete in it. During the next five years that the prize was extended, there were other attempts. One was a Frenchman who crashed on a takeoff in New York City. Well, I just want to I just want to point out that really basically anybody at that point could have at least gotten further and not been the worst. <laughs> like it would be very easy to not be the worst at this point. So really tons of people should have tried it after that. Yeah, basically you could say, you know, I didn't try, but I got as far as that guy. <laughs> Along with that, there were two US pilots that ended up dying in Langley Field in Virginia in 1927 while training for the flight. Two other French war heroes disappeared over the Atlantic. The Arctic explorer that Lindbergh had signed up for an expedition with was also pursuing the prize. And so there are a lot of people that finally were like, you know what, we can do this. Let's do this. Let's train for it. Let's get that prize. While all this was happening, Lindbergh was trying to figure out how he could finance this expedition. He wasn't a war hero. He wasn't well known, but he was able to find a St. Louis businessman willing to bring $15,000 to the table. Lindbergh contributed $2,000, which is about $30,000 in today's money. And RAC, his former employer, uh, they contributed $1,000 for a total of $18,000 to find him a plane and to finance this expedition. So they tried several times to commission a plane but all the manufacturers made pick the pilot a condition of the build. So if they were going to build a plane, they wanted to pick the person that was going to fly it. But they were finally able to get a small manufacturer, the Ryan Aircraft Company in San Diego, to construct a plane for $10,580. Lindbergh flew it from San Diego to St. Louis, and then from St. Louis to New York in May of 1927, and then he spent 10 days in New York City before making his attempt. Let me take so, 10 days to think about my decision before, <laughs> I, uh, before I take off. On the fateful day, Lindbergh took off slowly with a fuel-burdened plane and a muddy-soaked runway. Not good conditions. He left with 450 gallons of fuel, which seems like a lot for a plane at the time. Right. Yes, that was a lot. So planes at the time, basically all the planes had like passenger seats as well. And so this was a fairly big plane. So it had passenger seats, except they took them out and put fuel tanks in there instead. So, you know, there's a lot of extra fuel in there that you've got essentially two seats filled to the brim with fuel so that you can make the trip. Gotcha. It had to be solo. Like he didn't, he didn't have the opportunity to bring friends. (laughs) On the journey, he faced a lot of weather challenges, skirting storm clouds at 10,000 feet and dodging wave tops at 10 feet. What, what the heck, man? Why are you driving? Why are you flying 10 feet? trying to drive. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you trying to drive? Why are you flying 10 feet 
above the sea. He was like, man, I should have made this into like a ship or something like that. Crazy. Like, (laughs) I was like, this would have been so much easier if this was a submarine. (laughs) (laughs) It would be awesome if this was a three-part vehicle to (laughs) air travel, road travel, and water travel. I didn't know that part about this, about this journey. I guess they kind of skipped over this in the history books, but that just definitely adds to the danger of the attempt. So along the way, dealing with a lot of icing, fog, and he was not proficient at navigating by sun and stars. Uh, That doesn't come into his favor when in these conditions. (laughs) Um, Did not trust his radio equipment, which is weird <laughs> so can't navigate doesn't have a radio <laughs> he's like uh why would you trust a radio i could add more fuel to my plane instead of a heavy radio <laughs> i mean this kind of starts to maybe we'll do an episode on her but amelia Earhart obviously famously lost at sea but understanding these conditions i can i can understand how dangerous the, these attempts are for sure thought the radio equipment was too heavy and unreliable he's probably like you know i don't really trust radios i'm more of a sun and stars guy myself <laughs> i never learned how to do that yeah. but i'll give it a shot okay sacrifices i guess you know fuel for radio equipment but due to some serious luck the majority of his flight was not hampered by wind drag which allowed him to cross without any major problems When he arrived over Paris, he couldn't identify the landing strip on his map. Um, What he thought was a well-lit industrial complex was the strip. (laughs) Uh, Ended up in Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, what? I thought I was just over the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He got turned around a little bit. (laughs) Super lost. But the lights were tens of thousands of vehicles in what could still be Paris's largest traffic jam. Uh, thousands of people were heading to the strip to witness the completion of his flight. So, his flight, solo, transatlantic, New York to Paris. Total distance of 3,600 miles. Time, 33 and a half hours. Oh, that is brutal. 33 and a half hours. And I asked this before we started recording. And if our audience knows, I want you to tell me. Really bad weather. Is this a heated cockpit? In cockpit waste disposal system? I don't know. Don't know that deal. But I did find out that it was not heated. um, And so he had to dress very warm. So if you look at some pictures of him around his plane, he, (laughs) he looks like he's Russian. Couldn't imagine that it would be a heated plane at this time because I don't think the pilots of World War II twenty just years can't later it wasn't air conditioned because well, they all had yeah they all had those bomber jackets or whatever yeah yeah those things are sweet I need to get one of those those things are cool <laughs> anyway so, sorry for derailing so us. anyway we don't know if he had to poop his pants or pee his pants <laughs> or if I there mean, was a waste. Some type of wasting, which makes which makes what we'll be talking about in just a second even better. I need to stop (laughs) at least three times on a road trip, and I'm not driving for thirty hours. I mean, what did he eat and drink? Like, 
Yeah. Fasted, I mean, these so are the questions that these are the questions that must be answered. Probably some sort she of was fed off of his spirit for aviation and <laughs> adventure. <laughs> I mean, you can definitely go that long without eating or drinking, but your brain doesn't function as well. So probably probably some sort of MREs, if I were to guess, but that's just speculation. I have no idea. No, this is dope. So it says that he took five sandwiches, but he only ended up nibbling on one <laughs> the entire flight. So he lands and 150,000 people storm the field and hoist Lindbergh into the air. And once again, I bring up the fact we don't know if this man has pooped or peed his pants. So these people <laughs> are holding this man up in the air, which... Hayden, so wonderfully put, was probably the world's first and largest crowd surfing moment. Let the crowd surfing begin, Let yo. The crowd surfing begin. So some of these Frenchies took a liking to the spirit of St. Louis, and they decided that they were going to rip pieces of the plane apart for souvenirs, which is the biggest bummer. Uh, ever. I know. Come on, France. And ugh, clearly it belongs in the museum, but no, we're just going to rip it apart. They were super hyped. So hot for Charles Lindbergh right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm the only one laughing right now. <laughs> Everybody else <laughs> muted themselves. So he gets super famous for this flight, and and he gets even more famous because one day... Or one evening, he is in his house. His wife is taking a bath. And all of a sudden, he's like, where is Charles Jr.? He hasn't heard him for a while. And he goes up into the room, and his kid's gone. The window's open. He has no idea where his kid is. And so he takes his butler. I believe it was his butler. And they walk around the house, and they find remains of a ladder and a bunch of footsteps underneath the window to his kid's room. And so his kid is kidnapped, and it becomes a huge national story for about 15 days. So big that they have, they have prize money for those that know information. They change a law a national law that says if you kidnap someone and you cross the state lines it is now a federal crime which seems way late yeah <laughs> way late i mean it was definitely a crime probably a state crime but yeah so it was a state crime but once you cross they decided once you cross the state border it'll now be a federal crime which then allowed the FBI to investigate. There was a ransom note saying that he needed to be paid. I believe the first one was $30,000. And then a like a week later, it changed to $50,000. They thought that it had to do with some of the mobs and the mob bosses. And so they talked to a bunch of mob bosses in prison, um, Al Capone being one of them. And Al Capone said, hey, you let me out. I'll find this kid and he'll return safe. Uh, but they decided they didn't want to go that route. <laughs> and I don't know yeah, why. Was, I mean, his hard track and, record was very, possibly, very successful. <laughs> they thought, you know, maybe the blood of one person is better than the blood of hundreds of people. <laughs> if you get Al Capone out there. 
And unfortunately, 15 days later, there's this guy driving a truck and he had to go to the bathroom. And so he walked into the woods, did his business, and then saw a kid decomposing and off to the side. And after getting the authorities there, they realized that this is Charles Jr. passed away even after they had paid the ransom. Pretty sad story, pretty big story that eventually made laws be passed so that they could prosecute and be and be better at finding kidnappers. And so were they able to find this kidnapper? Yes, 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 they were. Because with the ransom money, uh, which included some gold bonds, they recorded the serial numbers of of the money and so they just sat there and waited for the money to be spent it actually started to be spent like all across the country so i think the guy was somewhat smart and distributed it out and traded it but he still kept some of it and he ended up getting caught because he was paying for gas at a gas station and used the bond money (laughs) what did we learn from this well, pretty advanced for the time because now that's easy to do. It's really easy to monitor credit transactions, but man, monitoring cash transactions is harder. Obviously not instantaneous, requires a lot more detective work. Yeah, so messed up. Famous from his flight and also famous from uh, his child being kidnapped and murdered, unfortunately. So The two things that history recalls the most of Charles Lindbergh was the transatlantic flight and the kidnapping and murder of his son. The end. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) So Lindbergh, probably distraught from the murder of a son, leaves the public eye, goes to live in Europe for three years, uh, returning in 1939. There's a lot of probably more speculation than evidence on this. A lot of speculation that he may have been a Nazi sympathizer to the point that when he returns to the United States, he is removed from the military uh, after attracting the president's attention. He wanted to fly in World War II after Pearl Harbor, but the president at the time, the president at the time, as if we don't know who that is, FDR would not reinstate him into the military. So he ends up being a civilian consultant during the war. Yeah. So Quick Look says... American isolationism was kind of what his thoughts were. He asked Congress to negotiate with Hitler. He didn't want America to become involved. Was not uncommon, honestly. But um, at the time, that certainly was like sympathy, right? Huge criticism, yeah. When Especially Great Britain was considering signing peace treaties with Adolf Hitler. Guys, the movie, if you this is a, this is a, sidebar the movie darkest hour is really really good it's about winston churchill's first few weeks as prime minister in the uk and winston churchill is a definitely definitely very polarizing figure figure but there was a definite point in time where the only opposition to hitler was winston churchill the only one halting the advance of nazi germany was churchill that sounds dope you guys got to watch Darkest Hour. Maybe we'll have to talk so about him good. sometime. No, he's too, he's too well-known. We won't do Churchill. So anyway, ends up in Europe, comes home after about three years, and is trying to take that American isolationist policy and ends up flying as a civilian consultant because he cannot get reinstated into the military. 
that pretty much sums up what we've got for you today on Charles Lindbergh. He ends up passing away from lymphoma, having lived out most of his years very privately, I believe at the age of 72, which when you think about the time frame, I feel like that's still fairly recent as far as a lot of our stories have gone. Fairly interesting. Skylar, you get to pick next. Do you have someone in mind? Do we have a teaser we can share with our audience? I've thought about... Tease us, Skylar. Tease us. And and bear with me. I'm pretty good at teasing, so (laughs) take what you may from that, but... (laughs) thinking about george mallory i don't know george mallory so he sounds perfect real quick real tease george mallory british mountaineer oh supposedly or not supposedly we don't know we can't confirm could possibly be the first man to summit mount everest yeah so yeah 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 i know that name now so Guys, what I want to be so bad is a 19th century British explorer explorer with all the the pants and the boots and the arrogance and the accent. That's what I want to (laughs) be so bad. So bad. The cheekiness. I don't know. Love stories about exploration. So with that, apologies for going three months between episodes, but that's going to wrap us up this one and Skyler is going to close us out. Yeah, so thanks for listening and joining us. Promise that we'll be back a little bit sooner with this next one. But in the meantime, you can go through and re-listen to our previous episodes as well as follow our Instagram at finest hours podcast. Follow us on Apple podcast and Spotify review us, rate us, give us five stars Guys, we want to beat the Jill Rogan show. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we hope you guys enjoyed the show. We'll be back in two weeks. I'll commit to it. I'll commit to it. We will do it. Okay. As long as we're not busy. That's it this week. We'll see you guys in a few weeks with another amazing story, possibly about British exploring, which is very exciting. As Charles would say, don't rip apart my plane. (laughs) (laughs) 